Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Groaning for glory. Romans 8, chapter uh, 8, verse 18 to 22. This, uh, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. Uh, groaning. Have you ever groaned? In my case, it's more like moaning. In fact, it could be described as whining. The older I get, I find myself groaning much more. In fact, I'm sounding, sounding, starting to sound a lot like my dad. I groan when I stand up after I've sat too long. I groan when I sit down after I've stood too long. I groan in the morning, I groan at night, and I groan when I eat too much. I groan when I got another bill in the mail. I groan when I don't feel like I have enough time to get everything finished. Groaning. It seems to be a way of life. It's a pattern. I'm stuck in it. It's a habit. But that's not what biblical groaning is. I wish it was. But biblical groaning is to sigh, to inwardly grieve. It comes from the Greek word stenazo, which means to sigh, to inwardly grieve. It's a rare word that only appears half a dozen times in the Bible, and five of those times is here, or, or I'm sorry, three of those times is here in Romans chapter 8. The word is used of Jesus, who groaned as he came to Lazarus' grave. Not, not that Lazarus was dead because he knew he was going to raise him to life, but I believe he was groaning, he was grieving that, that to sigh because death had come upon all men. It's appointed on a man once to die. It's part of the curse on creation. It's used of church leaders who, because of disobedient and sinful members of the flock, they inwardly groan. It's a word that carries a deep longing for something better, as we'll see in our text. It's an inaudible expression of deep emotion, the weary sigh from carrying a heavy load. It may not be expressed in words, but it is deeply felt. So as we look at this chapter, or actually these verses, verses 18 through 27, we'll see the first verses, the verses there are the groaning of creation. Verse 23 to 25, we have the groaning of the Christian. Verse 26 and 27, we have the groaning of the Spirit. And as I was preparing to go through that, realizing, of course, we had communion today, I, uh, I got on to about my eighth page, ninth page of notes, and I'm going to myself, there's no way I'm going to get through all this. But we're going to do it anyway. I'm just kidding. I'm just going to look at the first groan. Groaning of creation, verse 19 to 22. The context... Uh, to put our passage in proper context, I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 first. 17 is not part of the groaning creation, but it, but it, it uh, introduces us, and then 18 looks back at it and going to carry us forward into the groaning creation. And verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now there's, there's two key words here in verse 17. We're going to see them again in verse 18. Suffering and glory. Verse 18. 
For I consider, verse 18 is an introduction now to our verses, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in, that is, the revelation of his glory is not a spectator sport, which shall be revealed in us. It's going to be revealed in us. The word suffer. I'm going to look at three words here. Suffer. I'm sorry. Two more words. Suffer and glory. Suffer is pain, distress, hardship. In verse 17 it says we suffer with him. Now we talked about that last week. Simply means this. Because we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we suffer with him. How did he suffer? Mockery, scorn, ridicule, persecution. These, these are the things, this is the way he suffered. We suffer. We know that all those who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Now you may not physically suffer, but you may be mocked or ridiculed, but this is specifically, this suffering has to do from the fact that we are believers, we are Christians. But in verse 18, the sufferings, this, these are the natu- natural byproducts of life. Aging, ailments, difficult transitions of life, unexpected challenges. So our sufferings are twofold. There's those that, because of we're joint heirs with Christ, we will suffer. There's, maybe you aren't suffering to the extent, the same way that others around the world are undergoing persecution, but you may. But the natural byproducts of life, you are going to experience those one way or other. The suffering. I came across this illustration that no one is exempt from suffering. Suffering is the heritage of the bad, of the penitent, and of the Son of God. Each one ends in the cross. The bad thief is crucified, is he not? The penitent thief is crucified. True. And the Son of God is crucified. By these signs we know that the widespread heritage of suffering, Oswald Chambers and Christian discipline, by these signs we know the widespread heritage of suffering. You will suffer. Let me just take a time out here and step aside. I'm going to stay so I can see my notes, but a time out. I just want to, want to talk to you a little bit from a practical sense four ways that most people use to deal with suffering. How do most people, in other words, how do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with challenges in life? How do you deal with difficulty? How do you deal with the unexpected? How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with these things? The first one is denial. This isn't really happening. This is where most of us begin in dealing with suffering. There's something in all of us that makes us pretend that everything is going okay even when it isn't. Junior church, it's okay. There's something in all of us that makes us pretend that everything is going okay even when it's not. You ask me, he says, how are you feeling? I'm fine. Well, some days I'm fine and some days I'm not fine. But I don't want to go into a long discussion how I'm not fine. So I'm fine. You do the same thing. I'm not in denial. I'm not fine. But I don't want to talk about not being fine because then it'll make me even feel less fine. 
And that's all I'm going to say about fine. We pretend the problem's not there. We pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. We're in denial. The second way that often we handle suffering or difficulty is anger. It just flat makes us mad. We react to difficulty with anger by becoming bitter, sometimes even by shaking our fists at God. Why me? When we don't deal with our anger constructively, it will affect every relationship in life, including our relationship with God. It is possible to go through life angry with others and maintain a warm and positive relationship with God. It is impossible. Did I say that? It is impossible, not possible. It is impossible. You can't hate your neighbor and love God at the same time. Some believers live that way most of their years. And then they wonder why God seems so distant. Their prayers are so empty and their Christian experience so lifeless. Because they're angry all the time. Any little thing can set them off. They're just angry. They can't even tell you why they're angry. But they want to be angry, so they are angry. If that describes you, please take a good look inside. Because you'll never get better until you deal with anger within. Here's the thing. If you're not angry with sin, your anger will become sinful. Denial, anger. The third way that many people deal with it, and probably the most of us would have to identify with this, we blame others. Non-responsibility. We are, we are PhDs in blame-shifting. It's the most popular option because it makes me the victim. I love playing the victim. I'd rather be the hero. But if I'm the victim, that's great too because then I can have my own little pity party. You can feel sorry for me. But I'm fine. The fourth way, and I believe, is the way we should handle it. Accept it and learn from it. Or to put it a different way, be teachable. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 13, or actually 12 and 13. You know, why does God discipline us? To correct us. To teach us. It doesn't mean it's joyous, but it is necessary. When trouble comes, you really only have two options. Either you can become a victim or you can become a student. Being teachable means asking yourself, what have I learned from this? What is God trying to say to me? How can I grow from this painful experience? Early on in the ministry, I was assistant pastor for almost 15 years at two different churches. One of the churches I was... Uh, what I was at, we, in, in 14 years, we went through four, um, one, two, three, four pastors. It, you know, you, you bring up a pastor and the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from you. I tried to bring these pastors up right, but they kept li leaving. But anyway, one of the pastors I really didn't like. 
So I began to moan and groan and whine. And I remember calling my dad up and, and told him my sad sob story. And he said to me, stop your whining. You don't know what the Lord's trying to teach him, but you need to find out what the Lord's trying to teach you. We need to be teachable. Everything doesn't go exactly the way we want all the time. But what can we learn from that? Be teachable. A famous evangelist told the following incident. He said, I have a friend who in a time of business recession lost his job, a sizable fortune, and his beautiful home. To add to his sour sorrow, his precious wife died. Yet, he tenaciously held to his faith that was the only thing he had left. One day when he was out walking in search of employment, he stopped to watch some men who were doing stonework on a large church. One of them was chiseling a triangle piece of rock. Where are you going to put that, he asked. The workman said, do you see that little opening there near the spire that is the steeple? Well, I'm shaping this stone down here so that it will fit up there. Tears filled my friend's eyes as he walked away, for the Lord had spoken to him through that labor, labor whose words gave new meaning to his troubled situation. I'm shaping this stone down here so it will fit up there. Is he chiseling away at you? Are you teachable? Will you fit up there? Time back in. We're out of that time out. I had a little huddle. Let's get back to the text. We talked about suffering. We talked about groaning. Let's talk about glory. Glory is the already not yet. The anticipation that the best is yet to come. That's the way it's spoken and written here. The fact is, it's if we already possess this but yet we don't. It's already, but not yet. These things are coming. Glory, glorified. Our eternal inheritance, which is what? Everlasting life. Not yet, but it's coming. This is our eternal state, a glorified body. Not yet. I'm still look sadly as I've always looked. This is our eternal hope, our future certainty. No, I'm still here on earth. So are you. You may think you're someplace else, but you're really not. Neither one of us are really fine. This is our eternal inheritance, everlasting life, a glorified body, eternal hope. It's our future certainty. Suffering, groaning, and glory. Let's continue reading in our text. Now verse 19. I'm going to read verse 19 through 22. For the, great, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was such subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 
Creation, the, the groaning of creation, and, and there's, as we look at that, I want us to see these two things. First of all, creation is eager about something. Is it for the earnest expectation? When Paul refers to creation, what exactly is he referring to? What does he mean? He cannot be referring to angels since they're not enslaved to corruption. He cannot be referring to fallen angels or demons because they do not long for the revelation of the sons of God. He cannot be referring to believers because they are addressed separately in the next verse. He cannot be referring to unbelievers since they have no desire to see the glory of God. The only remaining part of creation would be the non-rational creation, that is, that is plants and animals and all inanimate things like rivers and mountains and heavenly bodies. Paul is using what's called a personification. He's giving to, to, to non-rational elements of creation the attributes of human personality. When he talks about creation, he's talking about the, the, the non-rational creation, the earth, the plants. A, a good example of personification is, of creation is found in Isaiah chapter 35 and also chapter 55. The wilderness and desert are rejoicing. I was wondering, the desert rejoice. He's, he, that's personification. In chapter 55, he says, the trees are clapping their hands. Really? Yes. Mountains and, and hills breaking forth into shouts of joy. So when he talks about creation, he's talking about the non-rational creation, the plants and animals and animate things like rivers and mountains, heavenly bodies. When Paul uses the words eagerly awaits, what does he mean? The, the, the Greek literally means to stand on your tiptoes, to step up, to lift your head up and look to far as you can see. He eagerly awaits. Creation eagerly awaits, is looking for that coming glory. To watch with an outstretched head. So what is creation waiting for? For the revealing of the sons of God. The word revealing translates the word apocalypsis, which we get our English word apocalypse. Refers to uncovering and unveiling a revelation. The book of Revelation is the book of the apocalypse. It is the book of the unveiling of the future world. Creation is looking for glory. Creation is looking for a new creation. Creation is looking for the unveiling of the second advent. Creation with that outstretched look, outstretched neck and eyes and vision. It's eagerly waiting. It's eagerly expectation. It's eagerly anticipating. Creation is longing for that future time when Christ returns to the earth. Why is that? New heaven, new earth. We're going to go into the millennium first. It's going to be all changed. Creation is enslaved to something. As we looked at 20 through 22, creation is in bondage to corruption, decay, disease, disharmony, disorder. Verse 20, for the creation was subject to fertility, or not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
See, creation is, a, is in bondage to corruption. Plants do not sin. Trees do not battle temptation. Rivers and mountains do not struggle with pride, envy, or greed. Corruption in this verse refers to the fallen state of nature. Most commentators refer to this as the law of entropy, or the law that states that things move toward, toward disorder and disharmony and decay. That's what's happening in nature, is it not? You can be the most conservative environmentalist around, and you will not be able to stop the decay of nature. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, then Adam said, I'm sorry, then God said to, to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, Listen, where did this come from? How did this happen? Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Kent Hughes in his book, on Book of Romans, wrote, Even now the animal world is filled with fear and violence. Even the loveliest scenes in nature, while remaining beautiful, are also witnesses to bloody and violent horrors. Floods, hurricanes, droughts, tornadoes, blights, avalanches, and earthquakes stalk the earth. These are the sounds of the earth's groaning. They're looking towards that day. After the fall, since the fall, the earth has been corrupted. Creation is enslaved to something. Now we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Before the fall of man, there were no weeds, there were no poisoned plants, no thorns or thistles or anything else existed that could cause misery to, or harm. There are those who cry today for living in harmony with nature, but the truth is obvious. When people were supposedly living closer to nature, Adam and Eve, Without the benefits of civilization and medicine and invention and resources, there was less comfort, there was more pain, more disease, and people died at a younger age. This is the point I'm trying to make. Creation is, a, is in bondage to disorder, disharmony, and decay. It's all around us. We have no control over it. Now, that was really, really boring to preach because it was such a downer. We, we go outside today, sun shining, and we're going, that grass is dying. The earth is shifting and our cement is cracking. It's discouraging. But this is great. This is such good news. God has a plan. Notice verse 21, it says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. God will lift the curse, create a new heaven and a new earth. Creation will return to God's earlier design. It will be free from pestilence and danger. Animals will dwell with mankind in peace and harmony. Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. What are those days going to be like? 
The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put its hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what can I take away from this? The groaning of creation will give way to glory and beauty of God's new creation. Remember in the communion, if often as I eat this bread and drink this grub, I proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Until he comes. How do I handle then these pressures of life? Be teachable. Be trusting. May your faith increase. God has a plan. And you're in it. (laughs) We're in it together. Father, we thank you, God, for the scripture this morning. We thank you for the challenge of it. We thank you for the opportunity to examine it. We pray, Lord, as we look at the next few verses, the other two warnings next week, or the other two groanings next week, Lord, I pray that you open our hearts, our minds to these things. Indeed, Lord, that we will go out into this world teachable, learning, serving, and inviting others to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together as Pastor Andrew leads us in the song. I think it's fitting for us to close this-